Well, good morning. It's so good to be in front of a crowd of people preaching God's word. I can't tell you. Uh, the last three months have been a battle of conscience for myself and, uh, and, and serving the church via the online uh, methods. But uh, I, I am very grateful to be before you to preach God's word this morning. A um, couple of things. Uh, I'm going to. We uh, today is going to be our last sermon in the Genesis series, and so we're going to be starting the Gospel of John. And we've developed a reading plan for you uh, that's out on the uh, welcome table. I'd encourage you to pick one of those up and start reading along with us in the Gospel of John and throughout other portions of Scripture uh, as we begin to preach God's Word today. Uh, also, on your seats, you should have. There should have been a little handout like this. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, but if you don't have one of those, I think there may be some extras around, uh, grab that, but it's, it says the major plot line of Genesis. Um, so uh, let me pray for us as we enter into a time of studying God's word and sitting under the preaching of that word. Oh, Father God, I am truly blessed to be able to stand before your people and preach your word and point to your son as the only hope in this world. God, you are a sovereign, mighty God with a providence that we are merely scratching the surface of. But oh God, let us see your providential care and hand and plan in ways where our eyes are so darkened by our cultural condition, by our situation in history right now, as truly history is unfolding before us. Oh God, may we see with eyes like Joseph can see, where we can look at our day, at some point in the past, or at a future day that you have providentially planned for our lives. And we can see that, call it what it is, evil. But God, see how you can use it for the good of us and the good of others. And God, we don't need to merely just see with our eyes. We need to place our full hope and trust in you who plans and brings about and executes that plan in your due time. Oh God, help us hope in you today. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Again, we've arrived at the end of our Genesis series. But uh, I want to know if anybody could test, give me a testimony of the need for hope in our current day. You got an amen on that? Amen. We need some hope, don't we? We need hope. And what I pray that we see at the end of Genesis today is the hope that we all need. You may have come in here this morning not thinking you need any hope. I need hope. And I pray that you will see through the study of our scripture today that we all need hope. But before we get to uh, the uh, end of Genesis, I, I want to 
uh, I want us all to participate in a brief thought experiment, okay? Brief thought experiment. I want us to think and imagine ourselves 400 or 401 years into the future. I'm not talking about flying cars and COVID-19 vaccinations. No, currently, think with me here, imagine, and for those of you who are artisans, this is probably easy, but for those of you who are like me, that are engineers, sometimes it's hard to think that far into the future. But currently, you are standing in a very wild place with very few resources and even fewer people. Essentially, you're standing in the middle of a desert questioning what exactly you're doing right now. Now, some really amazing, crazy, and quite frankly, miraculous stuff has just happened in your life and the lives of those all standing around you. First... You've just plundered the greatest nation on earth with very little resistance, like taking candy from a baby. Not that any of you saints would take candy from babies, but it was easy. Second, you fled that country in the midst of suffering that no one would want to befall them. The firstborn, likely of some of your neighbors, your friends, your employers have all been killed who didn't paint their doorpost with blood. Then you walk through the dry seabed that was very much covered in water when you arrived to the sea and is now very much covered in water that you're on the other side with your enemies underneath the water in what an insurance agency might call an act of God. And also, for some reason, a small group or a small contingent is carrying a 400-year-old coffin of a dead relative that only some of the most elderly among you will slightly recall. And you're rightly wondering, what is going on? You start to plan out the next few days And realize how crazy the last few days have been. And there's no way you're going to survive. Your Bear Gryllis advice and everything you've learned from Nat Geo's alone are not going to pay off. Okay? I don't care how many tarps, fire sticks, and hatchets you bring with you. It ain't going to pay off, All right. And to top it all off. Your crazy cousins are frolicking around chanting, we're going to the promised land, we're going to the promised land. And your realistic self is saying very loud in your mind, if this is the promised land, I'm out. Like, tap out, I'm I'm going back. Like, I want to go back over there. And you ask one of your friends, someone who you think knows somebody who might be able to do something about this situation, Why in the world are we here? Enter stage right, the book of Genesis. The history of how the Israelites, who were just liberated from Egypt, got there in the first place. 
The grand story of how God providentially ruled over his creation and the outfall of sin entering into the world to preserve his promise and his people in a foreign land for 400 plus years. And if God can do that for Israel, it's very likely that you and I, just like they did, can hope and trust in Him to accomplish the very promises that He has made to us as well. Specifically, today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 50, Verses 15 to 21 to see some of the most hope filled scripture in Genesis. So I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read the text aloud today. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. Down to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that that Joseph will, will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept as they spoke these words to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly with them. May God bless the reading of his word today. Now I do want to be honest with you that my sermon today doesn't take the typical shape of many of the sermons that I've preached for you. Uh, We are in the the very tail end of a grand story. And I simply want to take some time to explain the text to you. To help you see what I will say I believe the main point is. And see how God providentially provides for us even today through these very acts. And that we can have hope in God today. And then I want us to see how this actually, how this story can actually apply to our lives. So, the main point today that I want you to see in this text that I believe is what 
part of what God is telling us is that we can be a hope-filled people in life and in death because our God is sovereign and faithful. We can be a hope-filled people in life and in death because our God is sovereign and faithful. I want you to take out um, that little sheet, that little half sheet there that's the major plot line of Genesis. Now, for those of you who are um, in all kindness, literary nerds, you might really like what you see before you right now. Uh, there may be some of you going like, what is this? Well, uh, this is a, a literary tool to understand what is called narrative. It is to understand a, a story, okay? And there are major parts, those things that are across the top of the curve there. There's the introductory stasis or the setting, a conflict and tension arises. Then there's the story or the plot. And we know through our reading in Genesis, the plot does thicken, doesn't it? Amen. And then there's the climax, the resolution, and then a new stasis, a new setting. And that's really where we started in our thought experience. We started there at the new stasis. We're going into Egypt. The God's people are going into Egypt. So up to this point, we have come from creation and man's pure relationship with God and the beautiful command to multiply and rule over God's creation as his true image bearers. Unfortunately, that only lasts the first two chapters of Genesis. For in chapter 3, the fall happens and Adam and Eve plummeted the world into sin in a in a grave act of disobedience and rebellion to God. And God justly but mercifully punishes all of creation. There will be difficulty in farming, as Adam is told. And there will be marital strife. And on and on as sin corrupts everything in creation. Humanity now is awaiting the great reconciliation and restoration while they leave the garden and enter into redemptive history. The story of God to redeem a people to himself. Cain and Abel are not the offspring that God promised that would come and Bring this reconciliation and restoration to God's people. Noah and his sons, even after the, they survive a cataclysmic worldwide flood, are not the ones who reconcile God and man. Then God, in his kind providence, chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet each one of them experience. Periods of infertility and sinfulness. And were incapable of fulfilling the great promise of redemption. And now, as we have moved through most of the story up the plot line. We arrive in our second week of looking at a major section of the book of Genesis that covers Joseph's life. Mainly from chapter 37 through chapter 50. It includes the top part of the curve there. 
Is Joseph the one? Nearly, nearly a third of the book of Genesis is all about Joseph. Is he the one? Not exactly. But a great deal of ground gets covered in Joseph's life to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. Now, a multitude of Abraham's offspring, when he didn't even know if he was going to have one child, Now 12 of his great-great-grandchildren who God will set as the tribal heads of the future of Israel are now the inklings of the number of offspring that will be as numerous as the stars. Genesis 15.5 Yet God in Genesis 15, 15 reveals to Abraham that they will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. Genesis 15, start, 15 uh, starting in verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, Now for certain, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with a great possession. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Last week, Jared talked with us about pretty much the first half of of Joseph's life, which gets us right to the edge of the climax in Genesis chapter 46. And we learned last week about uh, what we what we can know from God in the midst of suffering. And I pray that was a blessing to you, It was a blessing to my soul. But today I want us to see how the last recorded words of Joseph are actually hope filled for us. And we can trust that our God has good intentions, even when evil things happen to us. So the text I read, as you look on your look on your little page there, is right in that part. Genesis chapter 50, 15 to 26 in the new setting. They're in Egypt. They've settled. They've gone and buried their grandfather. Or their father. And now they're about to go and bury Joseph. And this fits, this text fits into a larger context in the story that goes from Genesis chapter 48 to Genesis chapter 50. Covers Jacob's blessing. So Jacob has now moved with his whole family down to be with Joseph in Egypt. And he blesses both of Joseph's sons who Joseph had just had at the, the final year of the seven good years in Egypt. Jacob blesses them. Then Jacob is buried in the promised land. Joseph has to go and plead with with Pharaoh to take his father and go bury him in the promised land. And then there's the finalization of all of of Jacob's offspring settling in the land of Egypt. And with Joseph as their direct benefactor. And then Joseph dies. And makes a request that when we leave this land, that you will also go and bury me in the promised land. And ultimately, these final chapters demonstrate that Jacob and at least Joseph, 
most likely all of his brothers, hope in God's promise because God had preserved all of them via Joseph's mistreatment and injustices. Do you hear that? God preserved the tribal heads of Israel through the mistreatment and injustice of one man. And their hope in that God, in the God revealed in the scriptures before us, empowers the family to remain faithful to God for generations. But, back to our text, we see that Joseph's brothers are initially a little bit skeptical, aren't they? What's actually going to happen now that dad is dead? Is it going to be a contentious dividing up of the will? Is he going to repay us with the same evil? They fear for their lives. Joseph had messed them up something good. Okay? He had messed with them pretty hard. Remember? When they showed up the first time with money to buy feed, he sends them back with their money stuffed in their bags as if they had gotten away with highway robbery. He holds one of their brothers hostage and forces them to return to Egypt with all of their immediate family. They were like, well, if he can do that, like if he can pull all those strings, and now that dad has passed away and it's just us and him, maybe he's going to murder us. Maybe he's going to throw us into a pit. Maybe he's going to sell us into slavery. Maybe this isn't going to be as good as it seems. But Joseph, in an act of pure godliness, does not want to take vengeance on his brothers. What does he do? He extends forgiveness to them. And even commits... Not merely to forgive them and sort of make the relationship palpable and able to be lived in as they're now in this new country in a foreign land that is not their own. No, he says he will commit to providing for them and all of their families in verse 21. Joseph knows that it is not his duty to judge his brothers as God would have judged them. He leaves that up to God. Rather, Joseph, by God's grace and mercy, has the vantage point of seeing all that has taken place to be for their good and the salvation of the nation. This is where the great resolution of all of the problems in Genesis culminates In Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. As for you. You meant it for evil. Against me. 
But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, Joseph rightly reminds his brothers of the evil intentions and actions of of their evil intentions and actions. They wanted this favorite child and dreamer dead. They were willing to commit premeditated murder and cover their crime with a lie to their father. Their motives and actions were truly evil, meant to kill Joseph. We don't like him. He's the favorite child. He's got these crazy dreams. Now he's coming out here to check on us like we need a babysitter. No, that's not how this works, Joseph. But amazingly, it is by the very actions that they take to get rid of Joseph that God uses to preserve Joseph's life and his murderous brother's lives. What a gracious God. Maybe like 11 people that would be easy to get rid of. Like these guys. A band of brothers who want to kill their own little brother. Their evil acts end up being the means by which Joseph rules over them. And now in verse 18, they are bowed before him. The culmination of Joseph's dreams. Those sheaths of wheat bowed before him. Then Joseph reveals that even though that they had evil motives and actions in selling Joseph into slavery, God meant it for good. How in the world could he say something like that? I mean, that should awaken us a little bit. That should cause some thoughts to be springing up in our minds. How in the world can God take an evil, murderous act of 11 brothers and mean it, mean it for good? The words are not minced here. Notice what is not said, which sometimes when this verse is paraphrased, Joseph does not say what you meant for evil, God used for good. Like like all of a sudden God is surprised that, that, that these brothers would act in an evil way against their brother and now He's not sure how his plan's going to work out. So how are we going to use that for good? No, God doesn't use it. God means it for good. God is not shaken by the murderous intention of 11 brothers. God is not shaken by the murderous intention of Cain all the way back as they exit the garden. God is not shaken by the evil actions in our world. He has a sovereign plan and he will bring about his plan and his purposes for our life. He wasn't confused. He didn't have to call an audible. He didn't look up the defense is shifting. I need to call an audible. Figuring out some way to turn these actions of these knuckleheaded brothers to now work out for some kind of good. No, God meant it for good. The very evil actions of men, God had already providentially planned to accomplish the preservation of those brothers in order that a nation would survive in a a place that wasn't their own. 
God meant it for good, friends. Listen to that. The very evil actions of, the, of these men, God had already providentially planned to accomplish the preservation of his people. Take that, Satan. You want to work in the hearts of brothers to murder the dreamer? Well, that's exactly what God has sovereignly decreed. Judah will be preserved. And the lineage of the Savior of all of God's children begins at the evil act of these men. Satan, nor evil acts of men, can derail redemptive history. Satan and the brothers make the move that he initiates the preservation of God's plan. Now before we get ahead of ourselves and think that we could just wake up and see this stuff one day, I want to encourage you to remember that at this point in the story, with the brothers bowed down before him, It's been about 22 years since everything has befallen Joseph. So Joseph has 22 years of hindsight. That is better than 2020 vision. It is God's vision. As he, as Joseph, was being mistreated, abused, Unjustly punished. God was bringing about the miraculous safeguarding of the forefathers of an entire nation. Joseph now is the very one who provides not only the forgiveness that these brothers need. He also provides for every need that they have. Even the needs of those who were once his enemies. And in the midst of it all, the blessing that the offspring of Abraham will be to the nations is initiated as Joseph blesses Egypt with seven prosperous years. So much grain that they can't keep a tally of it. So many storehouses that they don't know how many storehouses they have. What I hope you see here is what Joseph is a picture of for the future hope of Israel, for the future hope of you and me. Because Joseph, in the hearing of these words, brothers and sisters, should be seen and is understood to be a Christ figure. He is a type of Christ. He demonstrates That the future Savior will be both one who forgives and provides for the enemies of God. Jesus is the one who John reveals to us to be the judge. Who extends forgiveness to brothers and sisters who believe and trust in him. Who also sin and rebel against God. But flee from that sinning and rebelling. Amazingly, Jesus doesn't just forgive us of our sins. Now, I want to tell you, forgiveness is amazing. 
It is a wonderful, kind act of God to clean our filthy, sinful slate of the reality of our lives, wrecked, ravaged, and full of sin. But forgiveness only puts us in neutral with God. It simply cleanses us before Him. We need something else to be in His presence. And so what Jesus does is that He provides for us everything we need now that we're clean. The righteousness in order that we might be counted as holy before a holy God. He provides for our every need so that there is a future accomplishment of complete and absolute restoration to God back in the garden. He expands the promise also. Not only does he forgive and provide, but then Jesus does something even more amazing. He says, you're not just going to inherit a land. If you are meek, blessed are you, for you will inherit the earth. It's all yours. Then he tells his disciples, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In the dwelling place of my father. Then he says these words in the culmination of redemptive history in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven, from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things, the broken things, the hurtful things, the evil of this world have passed away. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he comes to forgive us of our sins, to provide for us everything that we could never provide for ourselves in order that we might trust in him as our only hope of salvation and restoration back to God. There is nothing you can do to add to what Jesus has already done. That's why it's news, friends. And today can be the day that you believe in that good news. If you haven't placed your full trust and hope upon Jesus Christ as the Savior of humanity and the reconciler of man and God who was the offspring that we hope for from Eve, If you haven't done that today, you can do it now. You can trust in God. And I would encourage you to come to talk to me or Jared or any of us, any Christian friend you've come today. What does it mean to believe and trust in Jesus? I want to do that. We would love to talk to you. So this is where we are. Joseph as a Christ figure 
forgiving his brothers and providing for their every need. Jesus, as the culmination of that promise, born in the lineage of Judah, the one we can hope on. But what does it really mean for us today? How does this text really apply to our lives today? One of the things that I have begun to be more and more aware of in our culture, in my own heart, in the hearts of many I know, is that we are a people that are plagued with fear. I see it everywhere now. Many of us are fearful for our health. Many employers are fearful of being sued as if people, if people get sick with COVID-19 in the workplace. In other ways, we are fearful. We're fearful like the brother's skepticism of Joseph. Are, are God's promises really that good? Can that really be true? Can that good news that you just shared with me, Thomas, can that really be true? And not just true, like it's true, like the lights are on in this building. That's a true statement. Like it's true for you. It's so true for you that you can believe in it and forsake your sins and trust in Jesus right now. But, but we're skeptical. We struggle at times, even with the fear of man, seeking to either please man and I don't mean like just like men, like I'm a man. I mean man in general. We do this all over our lives. We seek to either please man rather than God or we fear man that he could do something more to us or better for us than God can. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see a bigger picture of the God we serve I wanted you to see how providentially trustworthy he is. And how we're going to see this is that uh, as John Piper explains this part of the story in his sermon in Jesus 37 to 50, he says that God plans. He inserts into his plan the very possibility that everything would fail. Everything could fail. He's brought the entire plan to the very brink of failure. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 41. Going back a little bit in the story, but I think it's helpful to see how this applies to us. I'm going to read some verses there. I'm going to start in verse 25. This is where Joseph is before Pharaoh explaining his dreams to him. But I want you to see, what I want you to see here is the providential plan of God. Listen to what Joseph said to Pharaoh. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, that is God, is about to do. God is about to provide for you seven good years of grain. God is about to provide seven years of famine. Then in 28. It is, this, it is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what God is about to do. Then verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream. Because Pharaoh had had the dream twice. 
means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. It is not global warming. It is not the mismanagement of the crops of Israel, the inability to flood the fields with the Nile River. God has fixed it. You will have seven years of plenty and you will have seven years of famine. Then look with me in 47 to 49. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities and he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance like the, sea of the, sand, like the sand of the sea until it, he ceased to measure it. For it could not be measured. How plentiful were those seven years? The accountants can't count anymore. And then 56 and 57 of 41. Genesis 41, 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Abraham, your children will be a blessing to the nations. It starts right here. Because the famine was severe over all the earth. I mean, we talk about repeating words in multiple verses. All the earth is repeated twice in the same verse. Pay attention. God's sovereign plan to bless the nations has begun. Famine and starvation are going to be used by God to move 11 sons of Jacob, their families, and all their possessions into Egypt. And if this didn't take place, how are we at the brink of failure? If it doesn't happen, Judah will die of starvation. If Judah dies of starvation, he will not have children. We don't get the Jewish people. If we don't get the Jewish people, we don't get the king of the Jews. Born in his lineage. But our God. Does what he has done. Over and over and over and over and over. And I'm going to keep saying it. Over again in the book of Genesis. He comes to the rescue. To preserve and accomplish his promise to humanity. That he will provide redemption through the offspring of Eve. I will make sure that Judah and all of his children have enough to eat. Even in the midst of a global famine. See the providential hand of God here. The book of Genesis puts it on full display. And if God doesn't let natural disaster derail his plan for redemption. As we already know that salvation has been accomplished through the son on the cross. And the resurrection. Then what in the world do we have to fear in this world? If we are gods. Through his conversion of our hearts. And out of the confession of our mouth. Then what can man do to us? As wonderful it is to live here. At times. 
To die is gain. The sure hope that God grants His people resting fully in, on Him, accomplishing His plans, is how Paul can write that. Jesus can say that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. Jesus can say, I'm coming again to get you. There's nothing you can do, nor anything I can do, or anyone else can do to derail the second coming of Jesus, our Savior. So get busy living under the good, gracious, kind rule of God and do His bidding and His will. Titus 2.11 says what that looks like. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for everyone, training us, us, those who actually believe, salvation is possible, but those who believe we are trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. What are we doing? We are waiting for our blessed hope to appear in the clouds coming from heaven. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stop living in fear, brothers and sisters. Stop living in fear of pestilence. Stop living in the fear of the instability of government. Stop living in the fear of economic upheaval. Stop living in the fear of man. No matter the way it shows up in your life. Repent of your fearful tendencies and hope in the God who fulfills every promise that He has made. Be empowered by this fulfilling God who promise, whose promises to date have been fulfilled. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling with fear today and you hear me telling you to stop it, it may be hard words to hear. I hear you. So if you're struggling, I would encourage you this week. It, it may be very good for you and good for your soul and good for your heart to go and study the promises of God revealed in Scripture this week. Take some time to see how God made a promise and God fulfilled it. And I will tell you that there are many, many, many promises that God has made that have been fulfilled and there are only a few that were waiting to be fulfilled, namely the second coming of the Son of Jesus, the Son of God. Another point of application because it's in the text. There is a very high probability that all of, all of us in this room have either already suffered, we are suffering at this very moment, or we will suffer at some point in the future. There are various reasons for this. Probably a multitude that I am unaware of, but I will give you three. The one of the reasons that we suffer is because our suffering and difficulties in this world were prophesied by our Savior. Jesus tells on a multitude of occasions his disciples that, and the crowds that follow him that suffering will be their lot if they are truly identified with him. In John 15, 20, Jesus goes as far to tell them, they've persecuted me. They will also persecute you. 
Additionally, we know that we will suffer due to the sheer amount of brokenness that is in this world because of how sin has affected everything. There is nothing that has been untouched by the corrupting power of sin. I don't know if you heard me. There is nothing that has been untouched by the corrupting power of sin. Let's start really close. You're not good. You're an image bearer of God, but you're a sinner who needs salvation. The very intimate recesses of every faculty of who you are have been corrupted by sin. It is not an outward problem, although there is a lot of corruption out there. It's an inward problem too. That's why we need a Savior. Third, we'll suffer various trials and temptations and difficulties because, let's be honest, friends, we have an enemy who wants to do nothing more than see us curse God. Prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. He's crafty and evil and stops at nothing to work in us rebellion and hatred for God and His ways. So suffering and difficulty show up when we enter the unexpected hours and days of our lives, doesn't it? You may be in year one. You may be in year 10. You may be in year 22. I don't know where you all are. The circumstances were one way today when you woke up, but the car broke down on the way to the service. The first few weeks and months of marriage haven't gone exactly as we had expected. Our good desires... Our good desires to have children have been cut off. Evil is present. And I weep with you who long for children. Come borrow mine for a couple of hours. I mean... Feel your pain. I know it's real. I know many of you struggle with bouts of depression. We're commanded by our employers to move halfway across the world to strain that that brings strain in relationships. A global pandemic is announced. Someone dies unexpectedly due to cancer or racial injustice. That move to that new place doesn't go off without a hiccup. Sexual intimacy in marriage, where is it? It's not what I expected. All of these things and the thousand other pricking, prodding, hurting, harming Causes us to suffer. At some degree or another. We know life is not the way it's supposed to be. But it is the way it is. But God. 
but God, through Joseph, is teaching us here what it meant, what is meant for evil in the immediate can have a grand and godly purpose for our good in the long run. God is teaching us through Joseph that what is meant for evil in the immediate, in all that we can see, in everything that we're even blind to, it's evil. But there is a grand and godly purpose for, good, for our good in the long run. God perfectly times His revealing and using of evil touches in our lives for our good and the good of others. One thing we must recall here before we lose sight of it is that Joseph isn't just some guy who's have a silver spoon shoved in his mouth saying pithy things for coffee mugs and t-shirts. He was hated with murderous pride and envy of his brothers. He was a former slave. He is considered to be dead by his family. He's been unjustly imprisoned. He's been falsely accused. And he was forgotten for two years in prison. And through it all, amazingly, Joseph never curses God. How easily we are tempted to shake our fist at God when five minutes of suffering befall us. Years. Then God uses it all to bring about the good salvation of a nation. Of Israel, beginning a 400 year sojourn in Egypt. None of what I'm saying, I want you to hear this and hear this clearly, brothers and sisters and friends. None of what I am saying is at all to ignore, minimize, or delegitimize the pain and experience of suffering. It is real. I'm asking you, in the midst of it all, to lift your eyes just a little. See that God could very well be working out good for you and for your neighbor. Your difficult trial could be used to root out sin in your own heart and be used to minister to your neighbor when they're in the darkest days of disbelief. I want to share with you one example. Many of you, especially those of you we've had the privilege of ministering to and premarital counseling know this. And my wife and I are very honest about this. Uh, the first two years of our marriage were very difficult. I don't mean just like we didn't like the same food. I mean like one day my wife gets up from an argument and says, I need to leave. I'm not even thinking about how that's going to be used. I'm like, how do I keep my wife in my home? There are argument after argument. Two years of difficulty in the first two years of our marriage. We had no idea how God would use it. We had no idea that... Now, 14 going on 15 years later, that it would be a blessing. That those two difficult years would be a blessing to marriages in this room. I mean, I was questioning whether or not I should even be a pastor after those two years. It's been a blessing in people's lives. It's a testimony in our lives.
I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know when it's going to be good for someone else and for you. But we have a, God, we have a sovereign God who can take evil and mean it for good. Amen. So, sojourning with God is a long, hard road of hope. Worth it. Because our God will surely accomplish our salvation and bring full restoration. You hear that, friends? Sojourning with God is, the long, is a long, hard road of hope. Worth it. Because our God will surely accomplish our salvation, bringing about our full restoration on resurrection day. It's worth every bump, every bruise, every cut, every lash, every tear, because our God will surely accomplish our salvation from pain, destruction wrought by sin, dry every tear, bind and heal every wound, and restore every blemish on the greatest day in world history that we're all waiting for, the resurrection of the living and the dead. Because our Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, He lived, He bled, He cried, He died, and He was resurrected as the first fruits from the dead that we who repent and believe would too be resurrected to eternal life with God. What, what was meant by an evil force occupying a land that wasn't their own and Rome to crush one who was saying he was a king in their midst, who could not stand for any other king but the king of Rome, crushed Jesus. And upon his very crushing, it secured your forgiveness and your salvation. And it, and it culminated in the resurrection of him and us. Amen. Do you believe it? Today, do you trust in it? Do you hope in it? All of your hope, all of your hope can rest in the God who forgives and provides for all eternity through His Son, Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Hope in Him today. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the hope. The sure, abounding hope that preserves us through every trial and every difficulty. God, help us see God, help us be hopeful. Help our unbelief that we might trust and entrust our life and all of our days to you, whatever befall us, O God of heaven and earth. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.